0: You're an all-star. Get your game on. Go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on. Get paid. And all that matters is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All Stars podcast. This is Barnsey back for the talk and footy episodes for the first time in 2023. We've had a couple of great Super Coach episodes for. The season. We also had a huge amount of pre-season supercoach episodes. But the talk and footy, it's been a bit neglected. That's because we had to wait for the season to actually start. So now that it's started, weekly talk and footy episodes. On top of your weekly supercoach episodes, the NRL All-Stars podcast does cover it all. For this one, we do have somebody who is a regular on the All-Stars podcast, also someone that did the Broncos Super Coach pre-season preview podcast too. And the, one of the hosts of the NRL Supercoach Champions podcast, Wilfred Catfish-Z. Wilfred, welcome aboard for 2023 talking Footy, mate.
1: Thanks for having me, Barnsie. Always, always keen to chat footy, even if it's not Supercoach-related. So yeah, it's it's always better when the Broncos are coming off a win as well, because otherwise I don't hear the end of it from yourself.
0: <laughs> well, it is a good week for Broncos supporters, that's for sure. Um, I mean, it's a, probably the perfect time for you to jump on, really, because after this week you'll be one and one and the gloss will be well and truly <laughs> off, are So, you know, the Cowboys, those Cowboys games, they're, they're often pretty tight affairs. I, I did see that your Broncos are favourites this week, though, which oh, must be off the back of their round one performance, but I was a bit surprised. I thought the Cowboys might have actually edged them out for favouritism.
1: I'm honestly a little bit surprised too. Like, yeah, sure, they were impressive round one, but not to the point where I think I would have put them above the Cowboys straight away. But don't get me wrong, I'm still tipping the Broncos this week.
0: <laughs> oh, of course, have to. So everybody that's listening for the first time or any of the Supercoach listeners who are maybe migrated over and thought they'd give this episode a crack, every week the NRL all Stars podcast has a TLT Tuesday episode that we record that gets out on a Wednesday afternoon which talks only Supercoach. But on a Thursday before the round actually starts, we also have a and Footy episode and that normally hits on either a late Thursday or sometimes a Friday and that's just talking Everything Rugby League. We talk about all the games that just happened. We also talk about all the different uh, media storylines that are happening and, and discuss and unpack those and we also always finish off with a Legend Rewind episode where we spotlight a Rugby League legend and talk about their career to finish off the podcast. So... Exciting one for round one, Wilfred. Uh, I think the first thing to talk about is obviously a round one review, which we almost touched on a little bit because your Broncos won. But I guess just generally the footy, I was pretty impressed. I thought that the footy, especially after all the pre-season stuff, like it's it's so rugby league and it's so cliche that leading into a season, like instead of actually marketing and advertisements and commercials for a rugby league season, you've got, you know, the 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 people the players getting drunk, the players misbehaving. You've got CBA negotiations this year that are a hot topic with which cancelled a season launch and everything. You've got clubs in disarray. You've always got all these storylines that for some reason managed to pop up for three months leading to a season. It's almost the NRL marketing machine that, that markets the season in this way it feels. But this year, even though we had all that stuff, when the footy started, the grass settled on the field the ball was just flying through the air and everybody just marvelled in a fantastic round, I thought. So pretty non-controversial round one of footy, and I actually thought that the footy quality was pretty good.
1: Yeah, look, I don't know if it's because we've just missed the actual footy for so long. I mean, say what you will about the trial games, a.k.a. the preseason challenge this year, but it just doesn't measure up to actual, you know, round one NRL footy. And, yeah, it was good for it to be back. We had some cracking games, I thought. And, and not just to pump up my Broncos again, but I actually really enjoyed that game just as a, you know, trying to watch it objectively. Uh, I just, it was, it was enjoyable. And uh, also even like the Cowboys and the Raiders, yeah, it was tight and it was a nice finish, but I thought just the, it, it really showcased, you know, like one team gets off to a cracking start and the Cowboys, and then it looks like it would come an absolute blowout, but then the Raiders, you know, they fought hard, they fought their way back into it and then it became a really exciting finish. So yeah, like uh, just some really good games like that. Uh, I loved it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's an interesting point you touched on with your Broncos because there were three games that were quite low scoring, but I found them all really high quality and actually very enjoyable, which not only isn't something that is sometimes associated with rugby league being, you know, a great round, but it's also something the NRL have pushed as almost not being what they want as well. You know, we've had the past seasons where they're pushed needing to score heaps of points and put the onus on attack and wanting heaps of tries and stuff. But you can see this round. You don't need that stuff. We had the Eels go down to the Melbourne Storm in Golden Point that was a 16-12 scoreline. And honestly, like halfway through that game, you sort of thought, "Jesus, could be a soccer score, but I'm really enjoying it. And then your Broncos, obviously 13-12 at Blue Bet Stadium, but it was an enthralling contest. And the Raiders-Cowboys was a weird one because it was like 1918, but it was like 18-0 very quickly that the Cowboys were up. So you did have that showcase in the first 30-odd minutes of all these tries being scored, but then it settled right down and it swung and ended up being 1918 as a scoreline. So those three close contests, you know, none of them hit 20 points and a couple of them didn't even come close, Uh, but... At the same time, I I thought they were probably arguably the most enjoyable performances of the round. So it just goes to show at the start of this season that, one, it's good the NRL isn't pushing different rules and stuff like we had a couple of years ago to to get all these tries happening and attack and stuff because rugby league really doesn't need it. And, two, you can really have these quality contests that don't need to have a lot of tries.
1: Couldn't agree more. And it's not just because my boys have been, you know, the – the whipping <laughs> the, the team that copped all the floggings over the last couple of years when you know the six agains first came in I genuinely just enjoyed the footy because it was an actual contest and it wasn't just because the ball kept getting dropped and it was wasn't like there was heaps and heaps of errors it was actually just good defense matching up against you know I guess some offenses that are kind of working their way into the season and and you know there was some clunkiness there but it it, it all made it for a good spectacle I thought so you know, even, and not to, to to bring this up, but obviously when the Dolphins, that what what a spectacle that was for their first game to have them come out, just be really amped up for the game and actually put on a contest when Plenty had thought it could have been a bloodbath with uh, your roosters. But, you know, like those hits from Felice Kafusi, you could feel them through the TV. I could only imagine what it would have been like, you know, in person. Just a really exciting round of footy. And, yeah, uh, I was just... I was just so happy all week, actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It does make you feel good. Let's talk about some games specifically. So there's obviously a couple of teams that have gone through some forced changes to start the year. I think that first contest is a good one just to quickly talk about a little bit. The Storm versus the Eels. Now, obviously, the Storm have gone through the changes of no Pappenhausen to start the year, and that's looking like it's going to be longer term, so that was always a question mark. And in this one, we had the Cameron Munster horrific compound fracture of the finger injury during it and also for the eels we've got you know an entire back row change where Isaiah Papalee's left what does that look like but then all of a sudden Sean Lane's got a broken jaw from the trials and Ryan Madison is unsuccessful in being able to play and he's out for three weeks it's it's interesting because they had an entirely new back row at the eels and obviously the storm also just with their personnel changes over the off-season ended up with a new back row too. Liero's been in the system for a while, but he hasn't been a starter. And then they obviously brought Eli Katoa over from the New Zealand Warriors to start. So I found that uh, a pretty extraordinary storyline in this one that I was interested in, watching both packs. I thought they both did really well. uh, And I thought, I guess for me, there's a couple of players that really stood up in that one. So I wanted to highlight Hopgood. And everyone that plays Supercoach knows about this. But in real life, it was pretty extraordinary. I know a lot of people sort of gave Penrith a little bit of a backhander and were like, how did you not keep this guy? How did you not play this guy? How have you got guys like Jamin Salmon on the bench trying to be a forward when you had a legitimate one that you could have had in play and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you know, Penrith can't play everybody. And they've obviously got a really good 13 in yo. Uh, and they've got pretty good edge back growers as well. And obviously, Kick-Out moved along, but they thought that Garner was a better fit for them. But Hopkins' performance, you know, 21 runs, 57 tackles, but not just the work right? The five offloads really caught me off guard. I, I didn't think he had that in him, really. Um, and he had no errors or penalties in that 50, uh, 84 minutes that he played as well. And he was really effective. Like, his hit-up metres were 168 metres for the hit-ups. It was... It was a really extraordinary performance, so I thought that that was great for him in the first game for him in a blue and gold jersey.
1: Yeah, look, you're absolutely spot on. It was just a, almost just a otherworldly kind of performance for, for your first official kind of game as a starter for a new team and just to churn out 84 minutes in the middle. And it wasn't like he was bludging. He was ripping in. And I guess, look, as as much as you kind of have to talk up a performance like that, you kind of think, well, what was Brad after thinking? Because at the end of it, like, he didn't use all his interchanges, right? Because you get the extra ones for Golden Point. He only used seven all game when the Storm used 10 out of 10. So... Really strange. It's really strange there. And as much as we talk up the Hopgood performance, it's unfortunate that it ended with a missed tackle that let Harry Grant score the match winner. So... Kind of
0: thing, and maybe that was because he was so tired playing eighty-four minutes in the middle, Brad Arthur. Geez, exactly right. So,
1: it's great we can celebrate the the you know the inhuman performance of Hopgood, but kind of think, well, what were you doing, Brad Arthur, when you had interchanges in hand? Sure, you had a couple of HIAs and uh, you know injuries that you had to contend with, but at the end of the day, you had someone who's probably more fresh than someone who's played eighty-four minutes in the middle. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit of a question, questionable decision there from my perspective, but it's not the first time Brad Arthur's kind of done that, something similar anyway.
0: To stick on the positives before we um, finish a compliment sandwich with a couple of negatives out of this one uh, okay. for both teams, I came away from it thinking that both of these teams are still going to be contenders issue. They're both going to be top eight teams, possibly a chance at top four teams, and I think that they – Kind of put to rest a few question marks. Uh, I know that the eels just the eels just are always going to have question marks. It's just the type of team that they are. Fans gravitate towards, I, I guess, being a slightly more negative view on them than maybe some other teams. But I, I thought that they looked good and that they put to rest some of the issues that they might have had. And they've also got Lane and Madison to come back, so I, I think they'll they'll be fine this year based on round one and what we thought of them. Uh, the Storm equally, like I thought, they integrated their players pretty well. Uh, and there will be another force again. Obviously, there's a couple of negatives, though, and and those for me are... The Storm were already quite short in the middle. Kamikamitha now being out for six weeks. So in the early stages, that's going to be interesting because guys like Josh King can't play 84 minutes as a lock. Uh, You had Christian Welsh playing big minutes and going well. Um, Nass did a good job too, but those guys as well. I think in a perfect world, Bellamy wouldn't be pushing big minutes for them. And they were also... I guess hit a couple of times through the middle from an Eels pack that was you know, reasonably inexperienced when you consider it. Junior Barlow didn't score a try all last season, and he barnstorms over for one after playing big minutes in the middle for the Eels against the Storm in this one in a low-scoring affair. I, I, I do question the depth of the Storm a little bit and how that's going to affect them. But coming out of this, the, the biggest storyline, aside from their depth, is going to be, wow, Cameron Munster gone. When they've got Pap Ed Munster on the sidelines now... <laughs> Even if we thought they looked pretty good getting this win against Parramatta, how is that going to look for them going forward?
1: Yeah, look, I think the fact that the Storm actually won this game despite all their injuries is probably testament to that depth. I, I do think if they lose any more players, it's going to be really scratching the bottom of the barrel for their squad. But I think you're right because the, the questions for the Storm ultimately is you know, if, they're, if their stars aren't out there, like Monster obviously is one of them, uh, how are they going to go for the next couple of weeks when they're down Already Munster, they're down Papenhouse before that. You know, a lot's gonna lean on Harry Grant and Jerome Hughes to to steer them around and obviously generate a lot of their points. But I think the one thing I never really question with the storm is that all their fringe guys will always turn up and do their job. And their job might not be very much. Like, you know, I think we when we see someone like a Jordan Grant, all he has to do is get through twenty, thirty minutes and just be serviceable, right? like he's not expected to do any of the fancy stuff because they, that's what the superstars in the team are meant to be there for. So I just think when, when they can grind out a win like this, when they're running out of a pack that's got, you know, Jordan Grant, uh, Bronson Garlic on debut, Alec McDonald, like Josh King is one of your, you know, three most experienced forwards already on that bench on, on, on in that pack. Like, I think that says a lot of, about what they were able to, you know, struggle through with. So you know when they get Kamikuma back, Eisenhuth back next round, Tariq Sims shortly. So I kind of think you know they, they'll they'll be okay as long as they can keep at least Munster, Grant Hughes, and Papenhausen. and if they play, you know, majority of the games between the four of them, I think they'll be they'll be all right on on the whole.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree, but I think it's a little bit thinner ice because. I am really lucky that Munster went back on in that game. Sure. I, was, I was very surprised that he went back on. And I am of the opinion that Pappenhausen is a ways off. Like, he might be mid-season, and then I don't think if he comes at mid-season, he's ever going to be Pappenhausen for this season at minimum. I, I
1: agree with that too, actually. And that's what I was like. If they lose Hughes or Grant over the next couple of weeks, then mm-hmm. sure, I'm definitely going to be a little bit more concerned for the Storm then. But if they can at least keep those few, if they win a couple more, because I guess the the – the upside for them is that their draw is not too tough over the next couple of weeks. You know, if they came across, you know, the Panthers or, or like, you know, a genuine contender like that, then you'd have to worry that they're not going to get the job done. But I think even, you know, Grant Hughes and the the ragtag pack that they've got is probably enough to handle a few of the teams they've got coming up.
0: Well, evil Barnsley kind of wants me, wants me to have Grant <laughs> out or Hughes out just to see, you know, just make Bellamy earn it, you know. Bellamy's not gonna coach for too much longer. Give him a give him a side for a while that's a little bit human <laughs> rather Fair than enough. superhuman. And let's really let's really get his get Bellamy's coaching york out and see what it looks like. But you know, that's a bit mean for the Storm fans. Look, the Panthers and the Broncos was the other one that we mentioned uh, as a highlight as far as the tight games and the great contests go. I think for this one, like, I, I want to hear what you feel, what, how you felt about it as a Broncos fan. Obviously, Penrith came in and lost that game to St. Helens. They haven't looked great in the offseason. I think it was very understated. Like, I don't understand how so many people, whether it was the media, whether it was fans, whether it was people that talk about footy, even other teams and players and clubs, I don't understand how so many people didn't, really credit how much of a massive impact Apicorosau going out and Viliami Kiko going out actually is. Oh, like I was in the offseason. I, I thought, you know, it's a, big, it's a big thing for them and I thought they'd start slow. Uh, but it seemed to be, you know, passed over by a lot of teams and a lot of pundits that maybe, you know, it's not that big a deal. I think that we very much saw that it was. But how did you feel about your Broncos performance and, and this game as a whole?
1: Yeah, look, uh, to talk the positive, I definitely was impressed by the defense. Like We haven't seen that type of intensity from the Broncos for quite a while. Even when they were having their winning streak last year, it wasn't off the back of the defense like that. There were some signs of it, but that's probably the best 80-minute kind of defensive performance I've seen from the Broncos for a couple of seasons now. So to me, that was really positive. And for that to happen, even with, you know, Cobo, who's not an experienced fullback yet, Not at first grade level anyway to to have him at the back and still be okay uh i i felt pretty confident about that because one of the things like you know we we give reese Walsh a lot of stick for you know um what's the word we give him a lot of he cops a lot of flack for his you know maybe Subpar attempts to tackle as the last line of defense as a fullback,
0: but I like how you gave yourself a couple of minutes to find the nicest way to say that. It's very good, Wilfred. Very polished.
1: Well, he's a Bronco right now, so I have to have to stand up for my boy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the fact is, like he's still pretty good
1: at identifying the, you know, the attack that's coming. He can tell where the players to, where to go. He's very vocal like that as a fullback, which is something that, you know, Tessie was never good at. Isaka was horrible at. Tamara Martin is probably decent at it, but, you know, obviously he's not full-time fullback like Walsh has been. So whilst Walsh can't make the tackles very well himself, but if he can get the other guys there and he can at least be another body there, I think that's going to you know be decent for, for the Broncos defensively. So, you know, showing, seeing that type of de- intensity that actually, you know, the desperation of defense was a really good sign. I tend to think just looking down at the squad, you throw resource into the, into the equation, the Broncos can score points. I, I feel pretty confident that their offense overall is going to be better this year than it was last year. As long as um, you know, I guess the the nine is probably the ever present question for this squad. But, you know, outside of that, I'm pretty happy with what, you know, who we have in all the other positions at this point and at, at this point of the season. And yeah, as long as we can keep the defense up, I, I do think the Broncos will be in most games.
0: Big minutes for Patty Carrigan and Payne Haas, who played Um, 65 for Haas and 70 minutes for Carrigan. They equated almost 80 tackles between them and almost 40 hit-ups. It was a huge performance for them and I do think that they're going to have to continue with big minutes and those type of performances to be able to be competitive enough uh, with other forward packs and certainly I think it was a big part of why they beat Penrith on the weekend. But one of the other things too, like when you're actually having a look at the numbers, there was a couple of real outliers. Like the completion rate of both teams was very good uh, but the Brisbane Broncos only had forty six percent possession, but at the same time, even though they only had forty six possession or forty six percent possession, they kicked for seven hundred and fifty nine meters, and the Panthers only got four hundred and twenty six meters out of their kicking game. When you're up against Nathan Cleary, like that's it's pretty extraordinary. I know Adam Reynolds can be a good kicker as well himself too, as the other halfback, but. They had a big possession swing with forty six percent, and they still managed to come close to doubling the kick meters, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. And it was also a game that they managed to keep really tight. Like, um, like you said, the amount of errors and, and things were down compared to what we've seen from the Broncos in the past. And I do think that the Panthers obviously wanted to come in from that St. Helens games and have a, and have a go after that loss in front of their home fans. So, it, really good. And the numbers actually look like make it make the. Narrative that it was a really good quality game as well, and the Broncos actually got the better of the Panthers. But other game that we didn't mention the Manly Sea Eagles 31 to the Bulldogs 6. Now, certainly, I think a lot of people didn't necessarily expect the Bulldogs to be a contender, but they thought they were going to improve. Uh, in the preseason, they lost a lot of middle forwards, which I think really hurt them. Luke Thompson and Panglade Jr. being out yeah, really makes them very thin. Uh, high reliance on Sutton and King in the middle where those guys had to play between 50 and 60 minutes each, and that's going to have to continue. On top of that, you've got Farmanu Brown, who was a starting lockout of all this. So their forward pack all of a sudden looked pretty weak. And I think that people probably overestimated the fact that despite some of the big names that they've signed, like a out coming in and a Marnie, their backline still is a work in progress, right? Alamoti debuted first game. Uh, you got Perham debuting for the Dogs and and at fullback as well when he's normally been a centre. Like, there was certainly some cause to say there was going to be some growing pains. But at the same time, uh, I think they just weren't competitive in this one at all. Do you chalk this one up to just a, a bad round one and just scrap it and move on? Because, you know, Cameron Giraldo still would have expected a more competitive outfit than this. And the errors and play of Matt Burton and Kiko in particular should be leading the side. And they were exceptionally poor. Of course, we need to give credit to Manly too. They were pretty red hot as well. DCE scored a hat trick. That doesn't happen often, but he looked really good. And obviously the other big guns fired like Turbo too. And Seabolt looks like he's got a pretty good structure in place. But should the Bulldogs be panicking after this one, Wolf?
1: I don't know if panicking is the right word. I mean, anytime you lose by that many points, there's always cause for concern. But like, I'm with you. I never expected the Bulldogs to start fast. and that happens every time you do have you know significant changeover in the you know the roster and I think I uh, I wrote uh, this is for this was for Supercoach, but I wrote something in the preseason where I think only eight of the players that ran out, you know, from the top seventeen last year have stayed. So, you know, two thirds of the team are, are new to the club uh, as as far as you know, their top seventeen guys. Plus then you throw in all the injuries that they've had. Like I think the the Seagulls pack is not big and not scary at the best of times. And they were, you know, they comfortably uh, out, out gained the Bulldogs back because, you know, let's face it, they're missing a few, a few of their key, key forwards there. So I think that that probably says a lot about what happened this game. And, you know, maybe Burton uh, was probably trying too hard to make something happen in spite of, you know, his, his team being dominated uh, in the forwards and, yeah, I just I would chalk up part of it to a bad game, but you'd hope there's some, some more positive signs from the from I guess from a lot of their new recruits, and you'd hope for just a bit more cohesion sooner rather than later. Because yeah, there's only so many games that you can afford to look this disjointed uh, before you're staring at a zero and 4, 0 and five start.
0: Yeah, and look, the telling part of that as well, the Manly side conceded four penalties, the Bulldogs conceded nine but the Bulldogs also conceded more six against on top of that as well than what Manly did. And a lot of that comes down, I think, to that really shows that they're pushing those forwards in that Bulldogs pack to to play more and to do more than maybe what their limits are uh, and that they are quite short. You know, you had guys like Pele only play eight or nine minutes on the weekend as well. And I think they're going to have to change that rotation a little bit. The good news is that I think Chirraldo's, Kevin is good enough to be able to do that. Um, but... You know, it's if if their forward pack keeps getting pushed like that, you can expect the errors and you can expect the penalties. And we all know that a lot of rugby league is possession. And the minute you start losing the penalty count significantly, uh, the minute you start getting more fatigued, the minute you start making more errors and missing more tackles, and then you're just not going to come back from that. Even good teams aren't going to. So that's going to be an important watch on their forward pack, I think, because they really need that to shine, especially with such an inexperienced backline. Uh, and the Burton really needing a platform to be able to create and do what he does best outside of this game. We did touch on the Roosters game, Wilfred. You did congratulate the Dolphins, so we <laughs> probably should talk about that one. Look, I was obviously pretty confident about the Roosters winning. At the same time, I did say to many people, the first twenty thirty minutes, I don't expect this to be a comfortable game. I expect to be worried as a Roosters fan uh, and I expect the Dolphins to be buoyed by that first 20 or 30 minutes, I did think it was going to be that type of game. So at halftime, I wasn't even particularly worried. Uh, but then the second half, you know, I was obviously very worried. And really what I expected was the Roosters to be able to come over the top of the Dolphins with their experience and class. The the Dolphins roster just, with all due respect, just didn't have on it, which I think a lot of people have commented on. Obviously that didn't happen. Uh, I think it was for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, The Dolphins played very well. Uh, I thought that the media commentary about Bennett getting them up and the sorts of things that he probably did was spot on, like I expected Bennett to really get in their heads about how nobody, basically, you know, nobody likes them, nobody rates them, everyone thinks you're <laughs> crap, all that type of stuff that I think would have worked a treat, especially all that has been talked and I'm sure happened with the Melbourne boys and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they were fired up and the forwards showed that. The forwards dominated the Roosters' middle. And you can see that in every single metric, but you could see it watching it. You know, they did dominate the Roosters' middle and they dominated possession. It was 56% possession for the do- percent possession for the Dolphins. Uh, and they completed better and made less errors. And that's the type of game that I expected from the Dolphins. I expect their season to be built on toughness, aggressiveness in the pack, limiting errors, completing sets. You know, that's kind of the blueprint, I think, for Wayne Bennett's Dolphins side in their first season. But, again, you kind of expect the Roosters to have a bit more class and to be able to, to beat those type of teams. And that's where the Roosters were disappointing. Uh, and they just had, you know, the completions of their sets was under 70%. That's not good enough. Their errors were too high as well. And I will give them a little bit of an excuse. And It's not an excuse for losing the game. But I do think that one of the things that's overlooked in a lot of the commentary is the Roosters um, were missing like a third of their top 30 squad. You know, they had Manu most notably out JWH made a big difference of not being there for the middle as well. And then you have to consider the fact that they had so many injuries in this game where you come into the second half and I'm hoping that the Roosters are going to come over the top, but then you see, Oh, Victor Radley, HIA gone for the game. He's out of the middle as well on top of the guys that weren't even in the side yet. And Angus Crichton's another key forward that's out as well. And then you lose Matt Lodge to a facial fracture. And then aside from the 15 minutes that Brandon Smith has to come off as your hooker, uh, he passes his HIA, comes back on, and Felice Cafusi absolutely rearranges his ribs. So, you know, it, there was, I think, probably a few more reasons than people cared to look into as to why the Roosters really capitulated, because I think the backline really suffered trying to play behind a very well beaten pack, but a very injured beaten pack. But at the same time, too, I, I don't take anything away from the Dolphins. They very well could have won anyway with how badly the Roosters performed and how well the Dolphins executed.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's a, a quite a measured way of looking at it. And not to, I guess, pile on your roosters, but you're right, because you're missing so many frontliners, and some of, some of them you just can't help. Like, obviously, Angus Crichton going through some things. Um, you know, Tuvanua still out from, obviously, the ACL last year. And, like, a lot of your first choice 17, especially the forward pack, just haven't been available. One thing I just wanted to point out, because I think when I was watching it, I was like, the roosters started off all right. I think you're up 12-6. And then Collins went off, Matt Lodge went off, Radley went off. I don't know if it was a good idea from Trent Robinson to do that because obviously they were tired, right? But I think the Dolphins scored three tries in the next 15 minutes while those three guys were off the field at the same time. And none of that was injury related. It was all because interchange, basically. I think something that maybe the Roosters, like, because you're already missing so many frontline forwards, Unfortunately, I, I do feel like your depth um, is not where it's been in previous years. You used to have Take Aho to come on. I used to have, you know, this is going back a little bit more, but you you had have dependable guys like uh, Isaac Liu, you know, guys who would still do a job off the bench and, you know, you'd be you'd be okay with it. When you're already missing uh, Jared and obviously some of the other guys there, like, unfortunately, you know, Terrell May, he was asked to be stepping up and just really didn't get the job done. You had – um. I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but the last name is White. He played like almost 40 minutes. And I just think that's, yeah, unfortunately, he wasn't able to match it up with more experienced Dolphins forwards who, yeah, they might've been has-beens. They may have been washed up and playing their best game for years, but that's where the Dolphins really, like uh, they got out to a 24-12 lead at that point. And I think then when Brandon Smith comes back and then Victor Radley comes back and Lodge comes back, but then those, you know, two of those three end up going off pretty soon after because of injury then I I, I I did feel like the Roosters were up against it for the rest of the game because of the, you know, the, as you say, the pack was just dominated by the Dolphins. So, you know, I, I think part of that was unluck, unlucky because of the injuries there. If those, especially Lodge and, and Radley, if they didn't get hurt, they it could have finished differently that game for sure. But you kind of have to be a little bit more concerned if you don't get some of those troops back sooner rather than later. If your, you know, inexperienced bench is going to have to be asked to be playing bigger minutes, it it might be a bit of an issue.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. And I'm glad you pinpointed that because I'm obviously a big Trent Robinson fan. He is one of the top coaches in the league and there's no disputing that. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes or there isn't, you know, questions that you can ask of certain things. Even the best coaches are in that position. And certainly with him, the bench, you know, I just, I don't understand because one of the other big advantages the Dolphins had was it was getting played up in Queensland It was hot weather. Uh, It was a nice track, or I should say it was a crap track, but it was a dry track. (laughs) The track was terrible. I I made the comment that it looks like that grass was laid two hours before kickoff. But, look, I don't want to digress. The bench, right? I do not understand. You, You cannot have Hutchison and Turpin on the bench, in my opinion, together. And... You know, it's obviously hutchison went and started at centre, which I think is horrible. You know, I don't think that we can continue to do that. But that meant that Corey Allen was on the bench. So you've got Allen and Turpin on the bench, and Turpin's going to obviously go in and play hooker, and Allen's going to go and do nothing. So then you we were already thin in the middle forwards, and then you're putting pressure on only two forwards on the bench that are legitimate full-time forwards in... You know, someone like White to play forty minutes, like you mentioned, and also Terrell May, who you know we rate over at the Roosters. But those two guys should be your, your maybe your second and third, if not your third and fourth forwards off the bench. And I just think that Robinson probably just didn't think that through. I, I just, I really am looking forward to just choosing either Turpin or Hutchison on the bench to cover hooker and to be a utility and having three forwards. And I do take your point that they are a bit shorter than what they normally have been. But I will say I don't think they are if everyone's there because, like, if you look at that middle forward rotation, you put JWH on the bench to play 42 minutes and, you know, Lodge and, and Radley and Collins, when they have their rest, doesn't matter as much when he goes out there. And, and then, obviously, that reduces the role of someone like White from not playing 40 minutes. yeah, and And White as well himself, he has been... Majority of his career has been an edge back row. He has played some middle and some 13 and stuff, but you know he w- has been an edge back row a lot before. You know We didn't even really have a legitimate prop outside of May. So I, I do think that Robinson made some mistakes with his bench. I hope that he rectifies that. We do need some troops back though. Um, otherwise, I think you're right. We should be in trouble. But with both these teams, Wilfred, are the Dolphins as good as what they performed? Uh, or... Uh, And are the Roosters, you know, as bad as what they performed? How do you see their season outlooks just based on round one? Because, you know, we all like to come to these panic conclusions, small sample sizes, and make big, bold predictions about it. Where do you see both these clubs going forward now after that massive round one upset?
1: So in the pre-season, I had the Dolphins pegged for somewhere around the 12th place team. I thought they were going to get a couple of surprise wins along the way and avoid bottom four bottom four. And that's part, part of the Wayne Bennett factor. So I, it doesn't change the fact that their roster is not fantastic. You know, it let us know there's no way of dicing it to make it look like this is a, you know, one of the top eight rosters in the NRL. Like it's, it's just not, uh, I think part of it was that the dolphins came out absolutely fired up and, you know, they played well above their weight. Uh, part of that is obviously the Roosters you know, missing, as you say, a third of their top liners and, Yeah, then further injuries during the game. So I tend to think once the Roosters get healthy, they'll just be as dominant and as difficult to beat as normal. And I think the Dolphins are going to do this to a couple of teams now and then. But I just feel they're going to be competitive. They may not win all that often. But I still, like just off the back of that, I still think they can finish around the 11th, 12th mark, just off the back of a couple of surprise wins here and there.
0: And that'll be a really good first season. Like People need to remember, I think, like, some fans go, oh, that's that's a bit unfair or that's not very good. If they finish 11th or 12th, that's a fantastic first season for the Dolphins. They don't yeah. have a real marquee signing. And, you know, they, if they avoid the bottom four, I think they've done well. I've actually got them penciled in for probably around that bottom four area. Um, certainly, you know, they might be fourth last or something like that, beat a few teams. And I don't even think that's going to be bad, though. Uh, and I don't think that's taking away from what they did in round one either. It's just uh, I think one of the things, and on this podcast, we do dissect some of the media narratives that get thrown out there and um, and throw f- forward some of the propaganda versus some of the stuff that's actually pretty valid. One of the valid things that NRL 360 actually said on Fox, and, and people like to hate on NRL 360 and Fox, and that's okay. But you've got to be fair too. You know, sometimes there is some takes and things that are pretty valid and and pretty well thought out football. And one of them was that it's going to be easier at this point because their depth isn't tested. But when the emotion wears off, of their first few games, when they get a couple of injuries and they have to bring in guys from the cup side, that's when the Dolphins are really going to struggle. Uh, And and that's going to happen because it happens to every team. It's happening from the Roosters from round one, their opposition. It'll happen to every team. That's where they're going to struggle because they just don't have the roster depth of a lot of the other NRL teams. So that's why I think that they're still going to be around that bottom four mark, but that doesn't mean it's a bad season. You know, I don't think they're going to finish last. And and that's a good season for them, especially when you consider the roster and how quickly they had to be put together. We do need to move on to a couple of other games real quickly before we progress into some of the big talking, talking points and storylines of round one. And one of the other games I was just going to quickly mention, Cronulla lost to the South Sydney Rabbitohs. It seemed a lot more comprehensive, Wilfred, than 27-18. Like, I never really thought the Sharks were in that. And I thought going into round one, until the Sharks get back Nico Hines, even playing at points at stadium, they're not going to win games. And that was reaffirmed uh, when I was watching this game. The other thing that I was reaffirmed about was that South Sydney are a very good side and are going to be at the top end. And I thought that they played quite well. I think that on the Supercoach podcast this week, um, we pointed out the fact that they, they've got this potent left side that's always Cody Walker throwing it to AJ and stuff. But the right-hand side actually really fine, and and they would be very buoyed by the fact that Lachlan Ilias had a career game round one of the season, looked like a very good halfback, and if he's playing like that, their spine, the quality of that spine is arguably up there with the, the, the best in the NRL if they've got their seven playing in that manner. So I thought that they could take a lot of positive away from that. Latrell looked good, I thought. Obviously, he had that injury, but... Yeah, I, I think that South Sydney reaffirmed that they're contenders and to me the Sharks reaffirmed that even though 27 to 18 sounds like a decent scoreline, they're, they're really not going to come close to competing with the top eight teams until Nico Hines comes back.
1: Yeah, I think that's spot on summary-wise. Like I, I I have the Rabbitohs in my grand final this year and I think what we saw with Lockie Elias, like he's, you know, it's hard to judge off one game, but it looks like he's taking that next step and if he continues to have a couple more of those games this year, I think you, you're right. That spine is, you know, a premiership spine there. Um, with the Sharks, I, I can, you know, without Nico there, he is the heart of so much that the that the team does. And, you know, we talk about Moylan. He played really well last year, but a lot of that is because he could, you know, he, teams were focusing on Nico so that Moylan could get into good areas and do a lot of good stuff that Nico then played off. But, uh, yeah, it was just not great between Trindle and Moylan this, this week. And, yeah, it's it's not ideal for the Sharks to start off this way, but you can't help injury. It's just you hope that they can. And, you know, well, Craig Fitzgibbon is a good coach, and I think you'll get them fired up. And you know, I, I think they'll be still competitive. It's just, yeah, they might not have the polish to take on you know, a genuine top-four team right now.
0: Yeah, and speaking about not not top four teams. Uh, one of the games I didn't really enjoy was that Tigers-Titans game. I didn't think that was as, uh, as high quality as some of the others. Uh, even and the Knights game versus Warriors to a degree, we're not going to unpack those ones because I didn't think they were that fantastic. And I'm sorry to those fans. We'll cover it a bit more in other podcasts. But the, uh, to finish off on the round, the Tigers losing to the Titans at home at Leichhardt was a surprise to me, 22-10. to 10. I thought Adam Dewey looked very good and I was expecting him to have a big season, but all in all, the Tigers were fairly disappointing in front of their home fans. And it was one of those games too, where one of their other marquee signings was Bateman and he's still not playing. And then we get told that he's not playing because he's being acclimatized and that's going to take a few weeks, which sounds like a load of rubbish. And then, People are saying no, no. There was a lot of English fans saying he had an ankle injury. Like, it's not so much about the game, but certainly this sort of stuff affects them. Like, they paid a lot of money for Bateman, eight hundred thousand. I just, I still get astounded by all teams, and I'm not going to bang on about the Tigers being run poorly or anything. All teams do this. Why do they hide injuries like this? Like, why Why bother <laughs> lying about it? Nobody cares if he's got an ankle injury. In fact, I kind of expect it because I made the point so many times that Bateman's actually low key been quite injury riddled throughout his career, even when he just carries stuff, kind of like Adam Reynolds for your Broncos, you know, he might play through stuff, but he's always got bumps and bruises. I wouldn't have even been surprised. You know, why put the pressure on yourselves to get all these question marks and stuff and the pressure on the team. And the pressure was certainly there round one because people expected, you know, a couple of weeks ago for Bateman to be playing and then there was visa issues, but then he arrived. It, it just seems odd to me. And it seems odd management and unnecessary pressure. And also for the fans that packed out Lycard over like, Tell them what's going on. There's another game at Leicard Oval this week and he's not named again.
1: Yep, totally agree. I don't understand it either. And, you know, not just it's not, it's not obviously just the Tigers. I mean, the Knights we saw, you know, Greg Marjorie's he's just a winger, right? <laughs> They're hiding an injury to a winger.
0: Yeah, I know. He's a winger that hasn't been even a, a first grader. Like if you said, oh, Greg Margie didn't make the side. Okay, super coaches would be annoyed. But, you know, in real life, it's like, oh, he wasn't making the Titans yeah, side. Yeah, exactly. So big deal. Yeah,
1: it, it makes no sense to me. And it's not like, you know, I don't think any coach is going in game planning for uh, Greg Mazu or uh, even a John Bateman. Like, maybe they give him a little bit more attention. But, you know, he's not the guy you're going to target. You're going to be focusing on Adam Dewey. You're probably planning on how you're going to control Isaiah Papali'i and contain him. You know, you're not you're not, you're not focusing a game plan around an edge back role who hasn't played in the NRL for a couple of years. So, yeah, it makes no sense to me, honestly.
0: Let's move along, Okay. The round review is always going to be the biggest review. Let's talk about some other stuff. Big thing that came out of the game, the concussion debate has risen again with independent doctors
1: mm-hmm.
0: being questioned highly. Um, obviously, there was a big case with Ponga. Ponger's looked reasonably innocuous, although I think that, you know, including me, like I can understand because there was head contact and it is a collision sport where. You know, even if you see a collision slow mo that you think is relatively innocuous, you know, on the field it actually is quite fast and hard. So, you know, some of those things I I kind of understand with Ponga. There was another um, a weird one as well in one of the other games with somebody else. But you know, all in all, this has all come to a head because not just that Ponga incident and a couple of others over the weekend, but because Phil Gould is absolutely gone on a huge rant, absolutely spraying the NRL and the whole idea of having independent doctors. So he has come out and said that it is the worst abomination that rugby league has ever seen to have these independent doctors Uh, and it's the worst thing in history for rugby league. He has absolutely torn it to shreds. He said, and this is to quote him, "This concussion hysteria where the game is headed and why it's headed that way and who they've given weight to, media and doctors and lawyers, all this misinformation. I think the doctor in the bunker is the greatest abomination perpetrated to our game in history. It's confusing for players. Not every bump to the head is a concussion. Not every concussion is life-threatening. It's just total overkill. And then he goes on and on and on. Now, look, I'm going to give my take, and me and you have disagreed slightly on this, although I think we're basically on the same plane with it, you know, a little bit different. But I think there's... The problem with Phil Gould is with a lot of things he goes like if he's going to go something he left leaves no stone unturned he absolutely burns the house down like if he's got the shits with his bathroom that whole house is going to be ashes you know he just goes for it and and that's his biggest problem you know if he just focused on the bathroom it would probably be okay because i think that he's got a couple of good points okay and i do agree with some of the sentiment you know and I, i do hate that um and, you know, everything is, you know, looked at as, oh, well, he's got a concussion problem or, you know, that's, you know, a concussion issue or whatever, which a lot of fans do as well when it's like, well, no, actually it's up to the doctors. And if they say he's cleared and blah, 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 then it's fine. You know, and I also worry about the game being hijacked about this sort of stuff. Okay. But he obviously went way too far. So my take, there is a hundred percent, a place for independent doctors. Um There needs to be independent doctors because, You can't, I still think that there is a very small percentage, and this is where I might disagree with you on, I think for the most part clubs and club doctors will do the right thing. I think it's a very small percentage where they won't. But the game cannot leave itself open enough to have like 1% wrongdoing in this area. So I, I completely support the independent doctors. Where I think the NRL has got it wrong and where I agree with Gould is it's, it's almost become overkill or going too far just because of how badly it's been managed. And I've brought this up before in the past. If you were going to turn around in a realm, Abdo, Vlandis everyone involved and say, this is one of the biggest issues that we're worried about for our game's future. We're worried about litigation. We're worried about player welfare. We want to protect everyone. We want to make it safe to play rugby league, which is ridiculous, by the way, because you can't. But I digress. On my rant, I'm going to say, sure. Okay, if that's the case, you're doing everything possible. But they're not because they are trying to save a few dollars by having someone in a video bunker reviewing stuff on a television screen. I think the whole process is flawed in that regard. There are 100% needs to be independent doctors, Wilfred. They should be paying for them to be on the sideline in every single game. If it's that important, it's not even an expense or, or too much money. No amount is too much money for that type of player safety. Have the doctor on the side. There's no reason it needs to be 15 minutes if it isn't a concussion and the, and the independent doctor says it's fine. For example, we have had instance, instances, including on the weekend, where somebody hurts their thigh or knee and Ricky Stewart blew up about that. Now, if that player comes off after the doctor's on the sideline looking at the TV and says, look, I've hurt my knee. You know, I'm busted. I need some vaso on my knee. I'm all fine. And the doctor assesses that, has a look at the footage and says, actually, you know what? From my assessment, it actually is a knee injury. I got it wrong. I just wanted to check it out just to make sure, which they totally should. You know, that player should be back on the field within a few minutes, five minutes, maybe, whatever, you know. But you're not going to get that if they're not at the field. They do need to have a feel for the game. They do need to be able to talk to the players. They do need to be able to do everything possible to assess that player. So to me, Wilfred, that's where the game's got it wrong. That's where Phil Gould does have a little bit of leeway in what he's saying.
1: So this is where, I guess, I can definitely see that point that you're trying to make there. Now, I'm no expert in this area, but I do like, I read into it a lot because it's, I find it interesting sometimes. (laughs) I don't go too, (laughs) too overboard in terms of what I'm reading. But my understanding is that the independent doctor, like their primary role is to look at the actual contact, which is why they need the screen and why they need to be able to watch replays and and see how the player is falling. They're looking for signs, the symptoms of of that. Uh, Again, you know, I'm not an expert, but, One of the, when they're looking for category one symptoms and things like that, i always forget what's different between category one and category two, but some of the things that they're looking for is, can the player break their own fall? You know, are they responsive because, or are they knocked out because of that head, um, you know, their brain hitting the skull off the back of that contact and they're actually out and they're not, therefore they're not responsive to break their own fall. Uh, Are they able to, you know, is there a little wobble when they stand up? So that's why they need the replays. That's why they need the television screens. It's not actually a like a, an assessment. I can
0: still have that on the side. Sure, one. yeah,
1: absolutely, and and I agree that with that. The other part of it is my understanding is that the ad, administration of the actual the head injury assessment, the HIA, doesn't have to be done by a doctor. Like the initial uh, assessment's actually done by the trainer, right? They they're asking those first few questions, mm-hmm. and then they go off to the side, and I, I don't even know like if there's an actual protocol where it has to be uh, medical personnel that's doing the actual administration of the HIA from there. So that's, again, you know, that's probably why, like, you know, as as much as I think yet that there's probably a reason to have an independent doctor on the sideline there, I also think, like, it's probably the way it's managed at the moment, it may not be necessary because what the independent, you know, review process is looking for is more of the actual players' responses and symptoms at the time of the contact and then, you know, immediately after, not so much the administration of the test, uh, from there, because club doctors are the ones who would look at, you know, the knees and the, the, the you know, the, I think the example you're talking about was for Sebastian Chris, right?
0: He uh Correct. Yeah, that's the one that Ricky brought about, And that did look like, and you, you never know, like, if you're not a doctor, I'm always of the view that you, you don't know as well as what they do. And that's fine. You know, they're the experts, but that just on face value look like that wasn't. Any contact with the head, from what you could see.
1: Yeah, and that's where, like, you know, we don't see all the angles either, and, and obviously that makes it hard for us to know what the doctors got access to. Just like they, they always say with the bunker, right? The the broadcasters have an angle, but the bunker, the bunker has more, basically. So we may not always see what the, exactly the bunker is looking at at the time because they've got you know five or six screens at the, uh, you know, on the go at the same time. So you yeah, know, I'm not going to pretend I know all the ins and outs of it, but I do think there's. There's a lot that we don't know about the procedures, and I, I dare say even Gus probably doesn't have it all covered, based on what he seems to be saying.
0: But isn't that isn't that part of the issue? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I've really got to squeeze the juice out of the yeah. lemon. That's my rant of the week here, so I'm gonna. <laughs> but isn't that part of the problem? Like, as a fan, shouldn't I know? But if I don't know, as a fan, as someone who is the CEO of a club like Gus, shouldn't he know? Shouldn't you know? Shouldn't all people involved in the game know all this stuff? You know, like they, they mic up players at times so you can hear players in sports and stuff like mic up so we could hear what happens during a concussion protocol or at least publish it or at least something like communicate this stuff because on face value to me you know 100% there needs to be like Gus is so out of line saying that there shouldn't be independent doctors or worrying about concussion too much and that out of line we have to worry about concussion it's a big deal but at the same time are we doing it the best that we can shouldn't we spend more money and just have doctors there look I'm it just seems, based on what we know, it seems pretty straightforward to me that the um, the actual procedures and things could be done better. And I know for a fact that it's been reported in the past that certainly during COVID, the response from the NRL was it's not cost effective to have a doctor at the ground at every game. And to me, that's, that's nowhere near good enough from the NRL and it's nowhere near good enough for the game. And I will finish on a really crude example, Wilfred. Under some of the guidelines and stuff, and this is why it's important, I think, for a doctor on the sideline to be able to assess things both on a video screen but also in person, Uh, I can't break my own fall and I can't get up and I'm half out of it on the ground, okay? If I, you know, come down in a tackle and it's obscured and stuff because the three-man tackle and stuff and end up face-planting on the ground because I've been hitting the nuts which has happened to me plenty of times before playing (laughs) footy. I do not break my own fall. I'm holding my nuts and I'm in pain and my eyes are rolling in my head, but it has got nothing to do with a concussion, you know, and and this is the thing, you know, it's a bit of a silly example, but the whole Seb Chris thing with Ricky Stewart arguing, that was his argument, you know, it was actually his leg and he's gone down with an injury to his leg because you can't stand up with an injured leg. There's a lot to unpack with it. I do think, I'm just going to say, I don't think the NRL is doing enough Um, as far as the process and should be spending on independent doctors to be on the sidelines. I understand where Gus is coming from in that, but he's obviously totally out of line as far as questioning concussion and, and how much we need to look at it and stuff, because that's needed. Independent doctors are needed and we need to trust and listen to them a lot more. Cracks in the Panthers' windshield. That's what Latrell Mitchell said. After that game, Wilford, Salmon and Luai were going at it a little bit. Now, ordinarily, I don't particularly have problems with this stuff, and you could probably put it down to a little bit of, I guess, propaganda in the media, some clickbait and stuff. But I think that the problem is that the Panthers aren't looking too sharp at the moment. They're missing personnel, as we've said. So does Latrell have a point? Is there cracks in the Panthers' windshield? And is there a problem with how that was handled by Luai and Salmon after the game and the look?
1: Look, I honestly, I don't really have an issue with what I and Salmon were doing. Like, I've got no doubt that happens all the time, just not as publicly as that was. So, you know, maybe in, in the heat of the moment, they went at it. And yeah, it's probably not a great look to the general public, uh, especially for people that aren't in the game. But I'm sure you've seen plenty yourself, like teammates will go off at each other and you know you some
0: teammates out would despise each other <laughs> like absolutely <it's> like,
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and look you know jam and salmon probably isn't happy that louise got that five eight spot right <laughs> he probably wants his game he wants that jersey but, but yeah, look like, I, I don't have an issue with it yeah probably could have been could have waited till they're back in the locker room or whatever but yeah i i think it's pretty normal it doesn't i wouldn't say that's uh indicative of you know a a crack in the windshield so to speak or or fractured kind of dressing room or anything like that. Uh, I, I, you know, I I think a lot of my concern and just to echo what you said earlier, like I was one of the ones who also said, you know, I feel the Panthers are going to absolutely feel the hit of not having Appy chorus out there to be a, a creative force out of hooker to actually deliver good service. Like the drop from Appy's service to Mitch Kenny, like it's 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 night and day, right? Because you talked about, and I didn't really get a chance to talk about this before. But Cleary, you know, he's a, we know he's one of the best halfbacks in the game. He's got a great kicking game. He's got a really long boot when he when he gets the opportunity. But what happened was that because it's pretty clear that it, the ball was going to Cleary, and it doesn't it didn't get there as fast as it normally does. It just gives so much more time for the kick chasers. Uh, you know the. The, the kick pressure, I mean, from the Broncos, and it just gives Cleary less time to do, you know, a good quality kick. And and it just, it translated to why the Broncos were so much more dominant in terms of getting kick meters down the field and stuff like that. So I, I, d- I definitely think that's going to be a teething issue. It might not be for too much longer as soon as Sunny Luke, maybe gets a bit more match fitness and, and some kilometers under the legs. Maybe he plays more minutes at hooker sooner rather than later. And that could be, you know, fixed in in, three, four weeks' time. But I definitely think on on the whole, that experience of someone like an Appy Coruscant, well, you just can't replace that, not with Mitch Kenny and Sonny Luke anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely correct as well. 100% agree. Uh, I think the Panthers aren't quite as good, but I still think that they're a force in the premiership chase for another title. So I will say that. But I will say, like, I think, you know, you're driving down a dirt road and your windscreen doesn't necessarily crack, but you get a couple of dings from the gravel. I reckon, that, I reckon that that's there and I reckon that that's there because in isolation, like the Luai-Salmon confrontation in isolation, if that's all that we've ever seen, I think you just throw it away and just say, forget about it. What are you talking about? Media propaganda. But I will say, Jerome Luai, none <laughs> of his indiscretions or things that puts people off in isolation are that bad? Like if it was a one-off for all these different things, I would probably defend Jerome Luai on every single one of them to say it's not that bad. The problem is he's now amassed a huge resume of all of this type of stuff. So where I think that it is an issue with what we saw with Luai and Salmon is that we've already spoken about the Panthers losing a lot of their depth. In that depth, they've lost leadership, okay? They've lost Appy Corosau, who is a huge leader at that club and is now going on to captain another club. Kick out whilst he might not say a huge amount, was still a leader in that club. And Matt Burton, for all his inexperience um, in the Penrith first grade side, was still quite a good leader. And he is a, viewed as a future leader of the Bulldogs side. These are leadership qualities in these players that are now out the door. And when you have a look at this side, it's basically hanging by a leadership thread on Nathan Cleary's shoulders and also Yo's shoulders, among maybe a couple of others. But really, those two guys are really it. And... Jerome Lewis is 26 years old now. He has been doing this crap for several years. At 26 years old, playing him what he is on and him being one of your spine players and main men in that team, he needs to be setting an example. He needs to be showing leadership. He needs to be helping Isaiah Yeo and Nathan Cleary out. And he's not. Doing that on the field is what you'd expect from him five years ago when he's 21. And that's an issue. You, you cannot see growth in Jerome Luai and you cannot see awareness from Jerome Luai and you certainly can't see leadership. That's where I think they're going to have a few cracks in uh, in that windshield. So, yeah. look, uh, am I being too hard, Wilfred?
1: No, look, I, I think I, I definitely agree with your point. Like, as a 26-year-old and, and, you know, someone who's more experienced now, he should be stepping up a bit more and, you know, it's obviously not, not something we've seen, but... Then you look at all this off-field stuff and what he gets up to is in, in his own time and you kind of think, all right, that kind of makes sense. Maybe it's just not that kind of personality to ever be a, a like a leader in a team.
0: Reminds me a little bit of Cody Walker. You know, Cody Walker sort yeah. of came on a bit later. And even when he was a bit older and had shown a bit more leadership, he still had some of those indiscretions.
1: Yeah. I think, I think you, it's not a bad comparison there. I guess what I was going to say is that because like the Panthers, they, I, th- I think I was reading, like, they've lost maybe eight games in the last three seasons or something like that. Something ridiculous where they barely have lost at all, and here they are, you know, back-to-back losses for the first time in a long time. So, here you know, just, you know, maybe a lot of these issues have always been there. It's just, you know, winning solves everything, right? So when you are winning and dominant like they have been for so long, you kind of just can ignore some of this. But now that they're not winning as often as they were, Maybe that's where you know the media comes out and finds something to write about, and something like this becomes a bigger, bigger talking point that it probably should have been. And if they don't win this week, which I, I don't know, I've tipped the rabbit over. It, so I think there's a good chance that the it'll it'll just you know the drum beats will get louder and louder, and every single every little thing is going to get criticised.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty fair, and I think that that moves us on to our second last topic before our legend rerun: the signing period is getting ugly again. So I know for a number of years, fans and even clubs have been up in arms about how we have players signing so far out. Um, From November onwards, a player can sign for another club for not the following year, but the year after that. And that's been an issue for a long time. Uh, I think that it's starting to happen again. Uh, I'll use my Roosters as an example. You know, the Roosters have recently signed Lenu from the Panthers, who's now going to play out the season with Penrith, knowing that he's not actually going to be at Penrith anymore a full year in advance. Uh, The Roosters have made some other signings as well. And it's, it's just become quite ugly once again, and it's raised the question, why are we doing this for? I think one of the misconceptions with this is a lot of people blame it on the NRL, and certainly the NRL is to some degree a fault, but... Uh, really important, you know, there's been a a number of stories about this, that the Players Association has pushed back on the NRL before. And I I get why, but I also think they need to give a little. So let me explain. Uh, The Players Association has said to the NRL when they've tried to change this before, that if we were to do from October to, you know, December as a signing period, that's not enough time. You have players that are potentially moving into state. Um, players are on holidays as well so they only obviously get a certain amount of leave each year like the rest of us and most of them like to go away and get out of Australia or go on a trip with their family or whatever so it's pretty hard to negotiate with clubs remotely and all that type of stuff and it's their time off I get that Um, you know if you're moving from Sydney to New Zealand it's really hard to to do that in a short period and you also don't want to be left out in the cold like you want to have the maximum amount of time to negotiate to maximize your deal and the amount of money that you get. So from a player's perspective, I get it. But at the same time, from a game's perspective, it's not the best for the game for me. So the NRL has tried this before Wilfred, where they have like sort of floated the idea of let's have signings the last few months of the year. The other problem with that as well is that clubs have even push back because it gives them a small amount of time before a preseason starts. Because preseasons obviously start a number of months before the actual season kickoff in March. It's, you know, November preseason starting for a lot of clubs. So, I understand all the parameters and stuff. The problem is that it just doesn't work how it is, you know, and then you have players getting asked if they want to leave already. You know, we've got the Roosters with Dom Young and all the fan uproar about all that. It's not good for the game. So I understand it's not great for the players, but the players are compensated pretty well. Do you think that we, the NRL should be pushing to say, after the grand final in October, that's our free agent period? Um, Because to me, it works in other sports. Uh, like the NBA really only has a, a pretty short free agency period. You're not allowed to discuss contracts before that. Uh, other sports around the world do similar. Um, to me, I think that you know, the players have had it really good, obviously, and for good reason, but maybe it's time to pull back on that a little bit because November, you know, 15, 16 months before you're even going to play for another club, it seems like a long time and it's really causing some issues once again.
1: Yeah. Look, I don't think there's going to ever be a perfect solution here. And part of the issue probably is the length of the rugby league season. Like, I don't know how many uh, other professional sports out there have, you know, 27 years plus, I'm sorry, 27 years, 27 weeks, 27 rounds. And then, you know, there's breaks in between along the way. So uh, look, I'm not going to pretend all the sports uh, are, are going to be similar to what rugby league has, but. Um and maybe tell me about NBA. Is there free agency period like it's not during the season, is it?
0: No, it's after the season.
1: And how long is the actual NBA season? Like how many how many weeks does it span?
0: Uh so the NBA season you have from basically October through to April. Gosh, that's... so it's 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 still pretty long and then you have the the playoffs and the finals, you know. Yep a couple of months after that, and they've got their like, their rookie draft. It is it is pretty much a sort of a year-round sport. One of the things that it does, like if you use the NBA for an example, one of the positives for the game, as far as fan engagement goes, like as an NBA fan, I'm engaged all year, yep. you know, because after the season, you've got the finals, and then after the playoffs and the finals, then you've got the rookie draft, which is great, and then after that, you've got the free agency period, and that's like a big bonanza as well. It's like the sport keeps going, and then all of a sudden, you've only got, you know, a month before the season tips off in October. So your your downtime as a league and as a sport is actually very minimised and you have high fan engagement for most of the year.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's a that's an interesting point. And, and obviously, because I follow the NFL but not the N- NBA. With the NFL, obviously, they have something similar with the draft and obviously free agencies just wound up this week as well. And I, I guess I, I try to imagine what that would look like for rugby league and because of the fact that they have, you know, for example, They try to do stuff like the World Cup. They try to have internationals. They try to have preseason things, and you know, it's different because you obviously don't have those similar types of issues for something like the NBA or the NFL or whatever, where it's just that the the league is, you know, the pinnacle, right? So, I I think for me, like i I don't, I don't want to pretend I have the solution at all. I can see where the players coming from, but I definitely do agree, as you've pointed out, like some. At least, you know, even if it's just a restricted period or something like that, there needs to be something to put in place to stop all the constant, year-long speculation. Like, even you know, Paddy Carrigan just announced he resigned with the Broncos. I, my understanding is that that's been like that's already been in place for like a, a couple of days, even a week or, not, or more, well before that little article came out about speculating, you know, who's approached Carrigan and all that type of stuff. Like, he had already resigned before all of that. That's my understanding. So. You know, I don't know if part of it's the, the issue is just rugby league media. Unfortunately, doesn't do all of this any favours. Like, as you say, like press conferences where you've got journos asking about player resignings, And when players are doing media, they get hit with co- questions about their own contract status. And like, maybe if we kind of prevented those kind of questions being asked, that might help reduce the amount of drama, speculation,
0: I don't know. It certainly would help with negative publicity. And, I, like, I think where the Players Association might be a little bit short-sighted is it actually helps their constituents. Like, the players are helped by something like this in a few ways too. There is some positives for players. The NBA free agency, back to that for an example, because it's going to help, you know, NBA for this year, June 30 at 6 p.m. is when free agency opened. Contracts wouldn't actually be able to be registered with the league until July 6. Uh, So they've got a week of negotiation before contracts can even be registered. And then pretty much like, you know, once July is done, it's all over. Like, and the NBA is taking place in a very large country in the USA where they've got a lot of States to move to. And even another country in Toronto, in Canada, sorry. So that's very similar to New Zealand with us. And, you know, they've they've got a week of negotiation before contracts start to be registered. It can't be discussed before that. Um, Certainly home teams can, can re-sign players, but, and discuss it, but, you know, it, it's a short period. You know, the free agency is done in a month and some of those players are on holidays and stuff. I think the thing is, though, that if you've got that happening in July, they do have a full three months, you know, after that, well, two and a half months after that where, you know, it's all settled and the dust is done, whereas I think with, the problem is with, I guess, rugby league is that they do have a bit of a shorter turnaround, but it's not that dissimilar and it does work. Uh, I I think that unfortunately we've just been spoiled in rugby league from a player perspective and they've gotten a lot and, you know, that's fine, but for the game, and I'll finish on this note, for the betterment of the game, I I think that it has to be looked at and changed. The reality is the NRL is looking at June as a bit of a middle ground. I don't think that's good enough. Um, Do you think June's going to really make any difference?
1: Not really. I I mean, it might, but I don't don't think it's going to make a huge difference. I, at the end of the day, I think part of it just comes down to the rugby league media. I think they could have a much better part to play in making things less of a drama. <laughs> to put it lightly.
0: Well, how exciting would it be if they could just cover a free agency period? Like they would love it. You know, at twelve oh one, like at, at midnight. Yeah. The, all the contracts start coming out. You know, when they're allowed in the NBA. Like imagine that. It's such a hectic a week, especially, but even the month. Yeah. You know, there's so much to cover. It's like the game's running. Yeah, the media could be so positive for it, but you know, the NRL and the NRL Players Association needs to sort this stuff out because no good for the fans is no good for the game. Finishing on this note, a positive one, Legend Rewind, Big Englishman, Sammy Burgess. Before I even talk about Sammy's stats, I'm just gonna go over to you. You know, what were your thoughts of Sammy Burgess as a player in his career?
1: Oh look, in his prime, he was just so good to watch. Like any game he played, he made it interesting because he would just go out there and try to kill someone. <laughs> he was just good, <laughs> whether on on or off the ball, like ball in hand, he just trample guys, uh, you know, off the ball, he'd hurt them. And yeah, he was just such a good competitor and, you know, he could have a laugh too. And it was good to see him, you know, looking like he was enjoying his footy as well. So I've got a lot of fond memories and it's, it's not all to do a super coach, but there's some of it that's part of it there, but Yeah, no, it was great to watch and I'm really glad he did, you know, have so many years in the NRL because I definitely think, you know, he upped a level of respect for a lot of English forwards and kind of paved the way for, you know, more of the more, you know, the more recent ones to come over as well.
0: Oh, 100%. Look, Sam Burgess, born West Yorkshire, England, uh, played for Bradford for a number of seasons before coming to the NRL. Four years at Bradford, 88 games, scored 17 tries over that period. But then it was really him at South Sydney, right? Um, And obviously him and Russell Crowe had the big friendship and everybody will remember that. But he played nine seasons at South Sydney for 182 first grade games in the NRL and 44 tries. Uh, Quite a few tries for someone, by the way, that played a lot of prop in his time and a lot of middle. Um, But Great Britain as well. You know, what an international player. 26 games for Great Britain. And he actually got the Rugby League International Federation Player of the Year in 2014 one of the many accolades, and the other big one was obviously the Clive Churchill medal for the 2014 grand final win in the NRL. So he, he had a very a shortened career compared to other NRL stars, Wilfred, because he obviously came over from England and playing in the Super League. Uh, and I probably would say one of the things that I would compliment him with is you, you have a lot of Englishmen that come over that, that, first of all, don't work or just aren't near as effective. You know, he didn't care that he was coming over to the NRL. He ripped in and played exactly the same way. And his game actually got better And to the point that he played far better in the NRL than what he ever did in England. Now, obviously, some of that's with age, but I really think that's a huge compliment because, to me, uh, there was times where he was the number one forward in the world and the number one forward in the NRL. And he did that for a prolonged period. And he did that playing a real hard style of footy. You know, he could score some tries. He had good offloading as well but some of the hits that he put on and some of the aggression, like you probably couldn't have a Sam Burgess in 2023 because he'd be suspended even more, <laughs> but I loved it. Like even just, you know, and I'm going to put some people offside here. Um, you know, I, I vividly remember in, you know, a few years away from his retirement, somebody fell on the ball and didn't move, which I hate that. Like I hate just grabbing the ball off a kick and then just sitting on the ground, you know? So instead of just putting his hand on him, Burgess like cocked his shoulder and just laid into his into his ribs, and it's like that's a legal tackle, by the way. Everybody ran in from everywhere. We had this all in brawl, and it was like, and the ref the ref sent him um, to the bin and put him on report. And Burgess was like, "Well, why? What did I do?" And he basically he said basically you tackled him too hard. <laughs> like it was like, a, you know, there was no need for that le- for that level of aggression or that type of hit. And It was I like, was totally legal, and it's like those are the that's that's footy. You know, you, you run the ball, you hit people hard, you run hard. And and that was Sammy Burgess. And I think that he was probably one of the most feared and revered forwards in the NRL as an Englishman coming over. Uh, and who could forget that game where he busted his jaw in the grand final?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's... You mentioned the Clive Churchill before, and I kind of feel bad because he stole it off his brother, right? I think we could all say George was the best, best player on the, <laughs> on the ground for the grand final, but because Sammy busted his cheekbone, he gets the Clive Churchill. But look, you know that's that's just a bit of a, a one-off there but look, i can't yeah i can't disagree with anything of what you said I, I remember that hit too, the one you're talking about when he laid into the guy on the ground i, I definitely distinctly remember that so yeah look he's provided so many good memories uh 2014 was just an otherworldly season from uh arguably one of the most dominant right like i for a forward. For a forward, yeah. it's
0: very hard to remember a more dominant season than that. And, I mean, people should remember with that broken cheekbone that you bring up. He suffered that in the first run of the game. Yeah. You know, played that, played that grand final one and won the club, Churchill.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's the stuff of folklore. You know, it's always a bit sad when, you know, post-career stuff uh, doesn't always go as nicely. And it kind of, it almost ruins, you know, the his name in a sense. But the football legacy is, you know, it, it's, it's up there. Like, it's it's all time. You know hall of hall of fame type stuff.
0: Yeah, and it also needs to be said too. He, he went and had a um, short-lived stint trying to play rugby union too, and that probably That's took right. a little bit away from his career too. They put him at inside centre, I think, from memory. It was just a debacle, but came back obviously. Uh, probably one of the the biggest compliments I could give Sam Burgess I think is that um, South Sydney is a very storied club that's been around for a a long long time so they've had a lot of all-time greats play for the club and he is certainly one of the all-time great not just forwards but players that they've ever had in my opinion so I mean for a club like South Sydney Wilfred, you know that's probably the biggest compliment he can have came over the NRL stage played for one of the most storied clubs that the NRL's ever seen and finished off as one of their best players of all time
1: Yep, I think that really summarises it very well. Uh, I don't think there's anything else I can add to you know, what you've just highlighted. Sammy Burgess, one of my favourite boards to watch ever. So, yeah, plenty of good memories of him and his rugby career, uh, his league career. Not so much his union career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do we just pretend that doesn't happen. England fans be proud of Sammy Burgess. South City fans be proud of Sam Burgess. Rugby league fans be proud of Sam Burgess. He was a phenomenal player to watch and he gave so much to the game of rugby league. Wilfred, that is it for the first episode of the 2023 series of Talk and Footy. Thank you very much for jumping on board. I always love talking footy with you when it's outside Supercoach, especially because you've been pounding me lately in Supercoach, so it's a bit better. <laughs> but-
1: <laughs> no, it's always a pleasure to come on. Like I said, always enjoy chatting uh, with yourself, Barnsley, Whether it's footy or Supercoach, it's always a good time. So thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome. If everyone wants to hear Wilfred a bit more, go and listen to the NRL Supercoach Champions podcast. The Supercoach Champions podcast is fantastic for your supercoach and also for your footy. So go over there and tune into that one. To tune into this one, to download, to follow, subscribe, make sure you share as well. It's great. Go on SoundCloud, go on Amazon, go on iTunes, go on Spotify. And if you want to follow the podcast on social media, Twitter is the best, NRL underscore SC underscore All Stars. And follow us on there. You'll get all the up-to-date info on the episodes and also me talking footy too. So until then, thanks very much for listening. Next Tuesday, we'll record our TLT for Supercoach and next Thursday, we'll record another talking footy. But we do have a great game tonight with Penrith and the Rabbits. Enjoy the footy. I can't wait to crack a beer and watch it. Can't wait to talk all about it again next week. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid.